This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. As we looked this morning at a New Testament text on the occasion here in Hamel of the installation of officers, we decided tonight would be an opportunity to one more time come back to 1 Samuel as an Old Testament text and continue where we previously were there. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, the entire chapter will be our text tonight. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, So they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants." He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, to understand the history of your people, to understand where they went wrong in this desire for a king, and that in light of it, we would be pointed to our King of kings and Lord of lords, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We live in a world and we live in a nation that perhaps more now than at any point in its history is very invested in and obsessed with its politics. Everything is political. If you watch or read the news, most of what is presented as news in our day is actually political commentary on news. You look on the internet, you could go on social media, and a lot of the posts would be political posts about this issue or that candidate or this election or that action of the government. Now, it's not to say that politics don't matter or they're bad or they're unimportant, government and our interaction and engagement with it is an important part of life. But politics and government are not all of life. For one thing, politics do not offer any abiding and enduring hope. They don't deal with anything beyond this life. People often place an almost eschatological hope in politics, a hope of uh, this is how we're going to save the world If we just get this candidate into office or if this party gets control, then that's just going to fix everything. Of course, the government changes hands regularly. And can we really say that things get sustainably and consistently better? That doesn't really seem to be the case most of the time. Things can get a little better periodically, but overall it seems like there's something of a downward spiral to government as evil increases in the world. Or maybe I'm just too cynical. But if we're looking for salvation, if we're looking for deliverance of this world in politics and government, it's not coming. We're warned about this in Scripture. We see this in places like Psalm 146, 3 and 4. It says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. Now again, this is not to say we don't care about politics or disengage from politics completely or don't pray for our leaders as we often do or seek within our power and spheres of influence a society that does good according to God's word. But that hope is not ultimate. Politicians come and go just as the nations they represent come and go. And most of them, many of them, are unable to deliver on what they promise, and they're certainly not able to save this world. Well, as it turns out, we are not the first people or the first nation to have this issue of misplaced hope 
in political solutions, thinking that, well, if we just get the right politics, everything will be okay. In this chapter of 1 Samuel, we see that Samuel's reign as judge is coming to an end, his time of being the leader of Israel, this prototypical prophet, priest, and leader of God's people. His time is coming to an end. As with many political successions, things do not go well. They do not go smoothly. And we see a people who have embraced a problematic ideology, but one that we see very often in our day. If we just get the right political situation, everything will be all right. But in fact, what is really going on is there is a political situation and instability that reflects a deeper spiritual problem in Israel. And so we will look at this situation tonight in chapter 8 in four points. First, we see an abdication of justice the abandoning, the deserting of justice in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Second, we see asking for a king in verses 4 through 9. We see the people make their request for a new kind of government. Third, we see the affliction to come in verses 10 through 18. If the people's request is honored, it is going to bring bad things. It is going to bring difficult things. And then fourth and finally, the answer from the people in verses 19 through 22. How do they respond when presented with the difficulty that their request brings? So again, an abdication of justice, asking for a king, an affliction to come, and the answer from the people. So first we will look at the abdication of justice in verses 1 through 3. You might remember from back when we looked at chapter 7 a few weeks ago that Samuel had ascended to the judgeship over Israel on the same day that God granted a miraculous deliverance from the Philistines. It sounded like from the information that we received in chapter 7 that Samuel's judgeship was generally a good and righteous and peaceful time in Israel. The Philistines were defeated, they were no longer an issue, and there was even peace with the Amorites, another perennial enemy of Israel. We see that God was being worshipped at Samuel's altar that he had set up in Mizpah. But things do not go as well when Samuel becomes old. Samuel has two sons, Joel and Abijah. And while Samuel was a good and righteous judge, His sons, who are set up in his place to succeed him, they were not good judges. Now this echoes, in a way, a similar situation that Eli, the high priest and judge of Israel, had faced in the opening chapters of this book. Eli was himself the judge and high priest, but his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were to succeed him, they were wicked, they were corrupt, They did great evil before the Lord, and so the Lord put them to death. Now, we don't get the same level of detail with Samuel's sons as we did back with Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, this is really the only time we ever hear about them at all. With Eli, we have some indicators, such as Eli's passivity to the wickedness of his sons, the half-hearted rebukes he would give them, his own feebleness and heaviness, that Eli had not been a particularly good or effective father in terms of raising his sons in the knowledge of the Lord. But we don't get any such indication with Samuel. Samuel was a good judge, 
He lived an upright life, and we don't ever hear anything to the contrary. We do see in the verses to come that God responds very differently to Samuel than he did to Eli when he pronounced curses and condemnation on Eli's family. God does not fault Samuel for what has transpired with his sons. He doesn't pronounce any kind of curse. But what has happened is that Samuel's sons are corrupt. It is possible that Samuel, in fact, it is likely from what else we know about Samuel, that he had tried to do well in raising his sons. He had tried to raise them to be faithful men and even prepare them to succeed him. But once his sons begin to assume power and influence, it seems to have corrupted them. While we do not see the explicit details of Joel and Abijah's evil like we did with Hophni and Phinehas, we do get some remarks as to what they were doing. First, they turned aside after gain. They turned aside after money. They wanted to use their positions of authority to enrich themselves. They accumulated money. They accumulated wealth. One of the ways that they did this was by taking bribes. And we also read that they perverted justice. Now these two things, they go hand in hand. You cannot administer pure justice on one hand while taking bribes and seeking to enrich oneself on the other. Those are antithetical. Now from this issue with Samuel's sons, we can glean some applications. First, I think there is perhaps something of a cautionary tale here to parents and those who interact with parents as we look at these two different accounts of fathers of corrupt children, Eli and Samuel. As Reformed people, we place a great deal of emphasis on God's covenant as it works through families, and we should. This is important. With this can come a tendency... When we see someone born into a Christian family who later goes astray, there can be this tendency to somehow put it on the parents. Well, if they had just done a better job raising their kids, catechizing them, disciplining them, teaching them, they would have turned out better. But we also have to remember as Reformed people that salvation belongs to the Lord. Sometimes children apostatize, sometimes They go astray. Sometimes they forsake the faith despite the best efforts of their parents. Sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes parents fail to raise their children properly, and yet God in his mercy saves and preserves the children. With EY, it seems there definitely was something wrong with his parenting. But with Samuel, we don't have any indication that it was. And yet for both, their children were corrupt. Their children went astray. So we need to be careful how we esteem our brothers and sisters who raise and have raised children who turn out a certain way. The second, another piece of practical wisdom we can gain from this account is that nepotism, while not a new problem, can be a problem. Samuel was a righteous man and he was a great leader but his sons were not. So just because a certain man is a leader in the faith does not mean that his sons or other relatives necessarily should be or are necessarily qualified to be. God raises up leaders for his people. Sometimes this is through family lines. Sometimes it isn't. So we need to be careful in the qualities we use to evaluate who rules over God's people. 
But third, we all always need to be on guard for the dangers of worldly power and wealth and influence. Now, that's not to say that these things are always to be avoided, but they do bring with them temptations and risks. We see here with Samuel's sons that they get power, they get influence, and they are corrupted. They use it to enrich themselves. In many ways, acquiring power and acquiring influence can accentuate and intensify the sinful desires that we already have. If someone is already predisposed to greed, then having a position that gives him power over money is a recipe for bribery, corruption, embezzlement, extortion, and so forth. Those who are prone to pride will be prone to even greater pride if suddenly they receive fame, if suddenly they're well-known and a lot of people view them as important. I can think of lots of people who were seemingly Christians, and then when the trappings of fame and money and power came, it shipwrecked their faith. Just one example I can think of, I grew up in the 90s listening to a lot of contemporary Christian music. But many of those artists I used to listen to, facing the pressures and demands of culture and of the entertainment industry, they compromise on homosexuality, they compromise on Other major issues of theology, they deny core truths of the faith. Many of them leave the church altogether. They claim now to be atheists. They claim to have deconstructed their faith. They got worldly power, they got worldly fame, worldly influence, and it just completely destroyed their faith. It's not just artists, there are even ministers, theologians, professors that fall into similar traps. This world is a dangerous place. This world is filled with people, filled with influences, all that want to destroy our faith. We are called to be salt and light in the world, but we have to be salt and light that pushes back on the world. Not people that assimilate, that blend in, that collapse in the face of what the world offers. So... Returning to our text, we, this is the situation we have with Samuel's unfaithful sons. They have failed to follow their father. They have been corrupted by the things of the world. And so something needs to be done. And so the elders of Israel come and they pitch Samuel a solution. This brings us to our second point. After this abdication of justice by Samuel's sons, we get to the asking for a king. In verse 4 and 5, these elders come to Samuel, and they recognize the situation they are in. Samuel has been their leader. He's been a good leader, but he's done it for a long time, and now he's old, and it's clear that they won't have him for much longer. Now Samuel, attempting to provide some continuity and leadership, has put his sons in his place, but it's not going well, and these elders notice this. Now their impulse is somewhat understandable. Nobody likes political instability. Nobody likes to be without leadership or without direction. Now Samuel hears their request, and as verse 6 tells us, he doesn't like it. It displeased him. But Samuel, ever faithful, seeks the Lord to see how this situation should be handled. And the Lord responds to him, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, 
but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Now, a question may arise here. Why or how have they rejected God? Is it wrong inherently to want a king? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, there are actually laws within the Mosaic law for Israel to at some point have a king. It talks about how the king is to be an Israelite, how he is not to accumulate wealth and military power, and most of all, how he is to know the law of God. A king up to these standards was allowed. It would be acceptable in the sight of God. So if having a king is lawful, what makes this request from the elders of Israel unlawful and rebellious? Well, first, we see that it represents a rejection of God's rule. To this point, God had governed his people in lieu of a king. He would raise up these judges when a situation demanded it. It was not Israel's place to come before God and demand a king. If they were to receive a king, they would receive God's king in God's time. Rather than seek God's will in this, the elders of Israel had chosen an earthly, pragmatic solution. They weren't looking to God's word. They weren't looking for God's will. Instead, they looked at the nations around them, and they saw that these nations had kings, and they wanted that. They weren't asking for a king according to God's law. They weren't asking for a Deuteronomy 17 type of king, a king limited in his pursuit of horses, of power, a king limited from acquiring many wives, or a king limited from chasing wealth, or a king submitted to God's law. No, they want a king, as the text says, to judge us like all the nations. The problem wasn't wanting a king, The problem was the kind of king they wanted. Rather than waiting for God's provision of leadership and his timing, they were going their own way. And this is why God tells Samuel what he does, that this is a rejection of God's rule over them. They did not seek out God's will for them with hearts willing to submit to whatever he provides. No, they came up with their own plan based on what the pagan nations around them were doing, and they were going to carry it out. How often do we face choices in life where we take the easy, pragmatic solution instead of seeking and waiting on the Lord? How often do we resort to our own reason and our own analysis to attack a situation or a crisis we face? How often do we trust in our own strength and knowledge and resources, and live as practical atheists. Live as though God is not there. How often do we do this, even in the church? We look to the world around us, we see what people are doing, we see what is popular, we see what people like, and we decide that we're going to do church in a way that reflects that, rather than seeking God and being obedient to his word. Heidi and I visited a church once. I won't say where. It was nowhere around here, but they did something that a lot of churches now like to do. They were doing a so-called sermon series called At the Movies, where in the time of the sermon, they would watch clips from a secular movie, about 20 minutes worth of movie clips during a church service. 
And then the pastor filling in with some seemingly biblical application that could be gleaned from the movie. Now, I am not here to preach movies to you or whatever else the culture is peddling. We're not here to look like the world and do what the world does or try to win people for Christ with the same things that the world is using to lure them to death and destruction. That is foolishness. But this is how the elders of Israel rejected God. They looked at what the world around them was doing, and they said, we want that. These pagan nations who did not know God, we saw an example in explicit detail, the Philistines and all the things that they did and all the ways they rebelled against God. The elders of Israel looked at nations like that and said, we want to be that. And this is where God finds fault with them. But he will give them what they want, even if they live to regret it. So God tells Samuel to tell the people what kind of king they will receive. And so we come to our third point. After the abdication of justice and the asking for a king, we now come to the affliction to come. The kind of king that Israel receives, at least initially, will be an affliction on them. It is easy for them without a king, like the nations, to look at the nations and see and think that the grass is greener. But Samuel will tell them the details. He will tell them what exactly having this kind of kingdom means. And this is in verses 10 through 18. And the king that we see Samuel describe is not the king of Deuteronomy 17. We see in verse 11 that he will take their sons to serve as his horsemen and charioteers. This implies that he'll be doing one thing that was prohibited in Deuteronomy. He'll be accumulating horses as representative of his military power. See, a king who trusts in the Lord trusts in the Lord's protection. But a king like the nations trusts in his horses, trusts in his armies. Now, speaking of armies, in verse 12, we read that this king will also want that. He'll accumulate commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties. This will come by removing men from their homes and their families and all the difficulties and hardships that come with that. He will conscript forced labor for his farms and his fields. In verse 13, he will take their daughters to serve in his household. See, kings like the nations live lavish lifestyles. They live in palaces, they have all this property, they have all this money and this wealth. It's the perks of being king. That is not the sort of king that God's people are to have. But we see even later that the kings of Israel, they fall into polygamy, accumulating wives and concubines. This corrupts David in various ways and his son Solomon. Verse 14, we see that the king will take the best of their fields and vineyards. Again, kings like the nations, they have all the best land, all the best property. They practice cronyism. They take things away from people they don't like and give it to their friends, give it to their supporters. In verse 15, we see the burden of taxation. I mean, the kings of the nations with their lavish lifestyles, they have to get that somewhere. They get it on the backs of the people. The king will take the tenth of their grain, Take from their vineyards, take their crops, their produce. 
He'll take their flocks. He'll take their animals. The king will take their servants. He will put them into his own service. The sword of king that Israel's folly will get them is a king that will take from them what they most hold dear. Their families, their food, their property, their prosperity. All of this will be subject to the king's tyranny because this is how the kings of the nations operate. Now this itself is symbolic. The people of Israel to this point, they had been materially prosperous. They had a good land and they had all of these things that Samuel had just listed, all that God had blessed them with. God had blessed them with children. He'd blessed them with servants, with flocks and herds and fields and vineyards. They had all of that. God had not only met their needs, but he had given them more. He had given them abundance. And yet, in this act of asking for a king like the nations, they had rejected the God who gave them all of these blessings. So if they will not serve God, as verse 17 says, and they will be slaves, they will be servants of a selfish and abusive king. Something far worse than serving the God they have rejected. Since they have rejected God, The very king they have asked for will be a means of God's judgment, how he takes away the things he has blessed them with. Even as they complained and grumbled and did not notice as they received those blessings. It was only a chapter ago in chapter 7 where we saw the people of Israel in a desperate and hopeless situation against the Philistines, and they repented and turned back to the Lord. But now the situation has improved, and it seems like, as so often happens, people who turn to God in a time of crisis, in a time of need, are inclined to forget about him when things are going well. See, tragedies and crises and difficulties remind us of our vulnerability. They remind us of our weakness. They remind us how we need to depend on God for all things. But times of wellness... Times of prosperity can fog up our memories. We can be lulled to sleep and forget that the peace and safety we enjoy is from God's own hand. But unlike the previous judges cycle, where after this time of judgment, God would raise up leaders and deliver his people, because of this rebellion by Israel, God promises in verse 18, he will not provide deliverance this time. This tyranny of the king is something they will have to bear the consequences of for centuries to come because they have asked for it. So, we've seen the abdication of justice, the asking for a king, the affliction to come, and now we turn to our fourth and final point, the answer from the people. So in the third point, we saw a solemn warning. God through Samuel has told the people the fire that they are playing with. Essentially, God will give them a king like the nations, what they think they want, but they're not going to like it. It's not going to be good for them. Now, one would think, after hearing such a dire warning, that they would change their minds. It would seem prudent in light of what they've been told. They're like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. But in verse 19, we see just how deep the stubbornness and rebellion of the people is. They say, no, there shall be a king over us. 
that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And in this statement, we see how far they have gone in their rebellion. It's not enough that they want a king like the nations. They want to be like the nations. They want to be like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those nations that have attacked them, have afflicted them, who have made war with them, who have polluted them with idolatry and corruption. The people of Israel have so quickly fallen from Samuel's reformation that they look at those nations, nations like the Philistines who we had seen so humbled by God just in the previous chapters, they look at, that, at those nations and they say, we want to be that. God will not be king over us. We want a king like the nations because we want a king like us, rebelling against and rejecting our God. They say they want a king to fight their battles for them. Was it not enough to have the very God of the universe fighting their battles for them? In chapter 7, how did Israel defeat the Philistines? God thundered against them, confused them. God could and would and had fought their battles for them. But the people in their rebellion, they look at God and they say, that's not good enough. We want to do it like those other nations do. What a tragedy. These people had in their very lifetime seen God's great deliverance. They had seen God's provision of a good and righteous ruler when they needed one in Samuel. Samuel himself was a type of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come, Jesus Christ. Christ is the King over his people, the church. But for now, the people reject God and they demand a king and a king they shall have. In the chapters after this, they get a wicked king, an abusive and evil king that is Saul. Saul is God's judgment on the people for their rebellion. But God will eventually have mercy on them. He will raise up a king after his own heart, that is King David, who will rule as God intends. But for now, a people rejecting God ask for and will receive a king to fit their rejection of God. What should we make of this? We are God's people. We are his church. Jesus Christ is our king. As we confess in our catechism, our king subdues us to himself. He rules us and defends us and subdues and conquers his and our enemies. Are we a people who truly submits to Christ's rule? Do we worship him as we are commanded in Scripture? Or do we look at the power and gimmicks and resources and entertainment of the world and say, ah, we'd rather do that? Do we look to our deliverance in earthly kings and earthly things when our God has promised to be with us and fight our battles for us? The choice is put before us tonight. Will Jesus Christ be our king or will someone else? Will we believe the gospel? Will we believe in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the atonement that he has made for sins, his promise of eternal life? And will we love him and serve him and proclaim him? 
or will someone else with worldly goals and ambitions rule over us? This passage calls us to solemn reflection. Are we the people of God or are we the people of the nations who do not know him? There is only one king and only one kingdom that will last. This world and its desires are passing away. The politics and the entertainment and the lusts of this present age will not endure. They will not satisfy and they will not save. If you desire to be like the nations and have what they have, the money, the power, the influence, the popularity, you will be like the nations and you will have what they have, the hopelessness, despair, sin, and death. If you desire to be part of God's people and to pursue his will, you will find hope, you will find forgiveness of sins, and you will find everlasting life. The kingdom of God under the kingship of Christ will endure forever after the world and all of its kings and all of its kingdoms pass away. All are offered entry into this kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you trust in his name tonight or will you look for your deliverance elsewhere? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords, who rules us, who defends us, who subdues and conquers his and our enemies. I pray that we would all be subject to our king, faithful to our king, that we would recognize the great and powerful king that we have, and that we would not turn aside to other things, the things that the world has to offer, the solutions that the world has to offer, but that we would be faithful to your word and your will and your rule and leadership over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.